This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. You can find me at Beverly Kirk, and our Smart Women, Smart Power handle is at Smart Women. Transitions between countries vying for global dominance are almost always violent. In fact, there has been only one that was peaceful, and it was the one from British to American hegemony. Dr. Corey Shockey, the Distinguished Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the new Deputy Director General at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, has written a book about this transition. Her book is Safe Passage, The Transition from British to American Hegemony, and she joins me now with more. Dr. Shockey, thank you for being here. It is such a pleasure to be with you, Beverly. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be on. Well, I am thrilled that you're here because I am a huge Corey Shockey fan. (laughs) So this is a privilege for me to be talking to you today. Well, what allowed this British-American transition uh, in the international order to be peaceful and different from others in history? Such a wonderful question. And I didn't know the answer to it when I started writing the book. Uh, And what I think the dynamic is, is that over the space of about 100 years, as the United States was growing stronger and beginning to challenge the rules that Britain had put in place, that what you see happen is the United States, because of the conquest of the American West, begins to think of ourselves in imperial terms. And Britain slowly expands the franchise of voting in their country. And so we become an empire, they become a democracy. And for the crucial 20 years, we look similar to each other and different from everyone else in the international order. And that sense of sameness creates the space for policy compromise in crises. So it's a story about how much political culture matters, about how much a nation's story of its own evolution matters, uh, a story about how much values matter in um, managing difficult crises. We don't talk a lot about values mattering in this context, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe lots of people do talk about it, but can you talk a little bit more about how the values matter, the common values, if you will? Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so um, if you think about the work of Princeton political scientist John Eikenberry, about how the international order that the United States established uh, as we came to be the strongest power in the international order, in particular after 1945. Eikenberry argues that American dominance of the order is more sustainable, and I would add less costly, because of the order we established. That is, we built institutions that gave less powerful states the ability to influence the rules we're setting. We applied the same standards for the most part, to ourselves that we applied to others, right? So the sense of of fairness of treatment, that the rules that are established apply to everybody, 
and that those rules permit anybody who plays by the rules to be secure and prosperous. That really is different from how other great powers shaped the order in their time of dominance. And the thing about uh, learning this history that was so touching for me was to realize that, that our country grew more liberal as it grew more powerful. And that really is rare among hegemonic powers, that we could have established any set of rules we want. Uh, in 1945 in particular. And yet we established a set of rules that prejudiced, that favored self-determination, that favored representative government, that favored free trade, that favored peaceful uh, resolution of disputes, that favored uh, cooperative security. All of those things made the American dominated order easier for everybody else to agree to magnetic in its attraction, and consequently drove down the cost to us of establishing and maintaining it, because others feel like they have a stake in the rules that we established. And the fact that all of this happened peacefully with Britain is, is when you put it in this context, pretty amazing when you consider that the U.S. exists because we fought a war with Britain. I love it that you took that perspective, Beverly. Yeah, a lot of people think, but wait, we and the British are so alike. But that's not what British and Americans looked like to each other in the 19th century. We fought our war of independence against the British. We fought the war. Of, we fought Britain more than we fought anybody else. Um, and what comes to happen across the course of the 19th century is that at the start of it, Americans look like tiresome hypocrites to the British, right? We're all talking about liberty, and we are a slaveholding country, right? And uh, Britain was first amongst countries to outlaw slavery and used the Royal Navy to police it on the high seas. Um, and and we were problematic. And so all of this big grand talk about our values looked ridiculous in particular to British elites, right? Uh, Charles Dickens, the novelist, comes to the United States and describes us as more barbaric than the Indian cultures we supplanted. Uh, a terrific British historian uh, describes Americans as a people too extreme in religion or politics or both to live peacefully where they came from. Right? So we look reckless and radical, and we look like demagogues to the British, because the United States, for the most part in the 19th century, was an illiberal democracy. But as we grow stronger, we also grow more liberal domestically. And you see um, the British in the 1870s as a result of religious revivalism in both countries, the end of slavery. Uh, the United States becoming more democratic in our own right, and also we and the British look alike to each other and different from everybody else because we're the first to industrialize, we're the first to democratize, we start thinking in similar ways. The book also explores nine points of crises um, or tension between the U.S. and Britain over this period uh, of time uh, in the transition. Can you walk us through some of those 
periods of tension or periods of crises and how they impacted the transition? Oh, I would be delighted to. The nine uh, cases, or nine examples of this one case study that I use in the book are all points in time where the United States started trying to change the rules. So that's why I didn't start with the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, because both of those are instances where the U.S. was simply seeking for Britain to uh, honor the rules it had imposed, right? No taxation without representation of us, no impressment of sailors on the high seas. But what you see by 1821 is the U.S. starting to try and change the rules of international order. And so I start with the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which... Uh, I didn't know when I started writing this book, the Monroe Doctrine was actually a British proposal to the United States for us to bilaterally prevent continental Europeans from taking advantage of the corrosion of Portugal and Spain's empires in the New World. And in that instance, when we step forward unilaterally to do that without British help, it's the first time that we make the argument that countries that have representative governments really are different and deserve different rules of order. Uh, the second inflection point I look at in the book is the Oregon Boundary Crisis of 1845, where uh, the Oregon Territory, which is the Pacific Northwest, was at that time under joint British and American sovereignty. And President Polk makes the argument that Britain uh, cedes the right of ruling because they're not a democratic country. And some voices within Britain even agree that with that. So it, we begin to be able to affect British domestic politics because of our political ideology. The third case that I look at is the American Civil War, in particular, why Britain didn't recognize the Confederacy. And it's my favorite chapter in the book because it's the one where who we are as a political culture is most resounding, and that who we are as, as a representative government and as an immigrant society are actually breaks against the strongest power in the international order doing what it thought was in its interests. Because America as an immigrant country had the ability to affect how, in particular, Irish citizens and Scottish citizens thought about British rule of their country. So we could hit bank shots back into other people's domestic politics. And it also affected the debate about liberalization of the voting franchise in Britain. And so it's so beautiful to me. We often think, for example, with the internment of Japanese Americans in World War I, we often think about our polyglot ethnicities in the United States as a source of vulnerability. But what this case study shows is they were an extraordinary source of strength for the United States. And I think that's an important perspective that we often overlook. Mm -hmm. So after that, the next case study isn't about a particular crisis. It's about the way in the 1870s, both Britain and the United States construct their national mythologies. And for the British, it's about peaceful political evolution. And for the United States, it's about manifest destiny. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of repositions both societies. The next 
um, case in the book is the Venezuelan debt crises in 1895 and in 1905. Obscure, marginal little case, but it's the moment of transition. It's the moment where the United States, for the first time, challenges Britain and the British cede us uh, the establishment of rules that aren't in their interest. The next case is the Spanish-American War, where the British, while, while nominally neutral, assist us enormously in succeeding against Spain. And uh, Commodore Dewey, who had commanded the fleet um, that fought the Battle of Manila, describes British assistance as material to his victory. So at, by 1898, Britain and the United States look like allies to everybody else, even if we don't look that much to ourselves. Then I look at World War I, and coming out of World War I is the first time the United States really starts to think about reshaping the international order in our image. Uh, the Versailles negotiations, the 14 points by which, and what's so touching Just celebrated about, the 100th anniversary of- Exactly! What's so touching about that case study for me is that the way to persuade Americans to care about engaging our power in the world is actually values. It's much harder to do on interests, but caring about self-determination and and our fervent belief since our founding and better and better applied in our own society and elsewhere that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments. Um, that we begin to reshape the system that way. And then the last case study in the book, oh, I'm sorry, I skip over the Washington Naval Accords in 1921. And then the last case study in the book is World War II, where this plays out in technical or large screen um, uh, movies where the United States really does shape the international order and has sustained that order with a lot of help from our friends and our allies for the last 70-some years. And it really is amazing, I'll reiterate, that through each of these points where there could have been conflict, uh, there could have been a fight, it happens peacefully. Yeah, it. the thing that I learned most strongly from writing this book of 140 years history is how highly contingent a peaceful outcome was. Even between two countries who have so many similarities of uh, governance, of uh of political philosophy, of similar language, of similar religious constitution in the countries. Even there, this was a very sporty outcome. And so it makes me deeply skeptical that future hegemonic transitions where there is not a strong sense of sameness between the two societies it makes me deeply skeptical that can happen peacefully. And we're going to talk about the future hegemonic uh, potential conflicts in just a moment. I want to remind uh, our listeners that you're listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. And I'm Beverly Kirk. 
My guest is Dr. Corey Shockey, a distinguished research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and the Deputy Director General at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women, and you can follow Corey at Corey Shockey, and let me spell that for you, K-O-R-I-S-C-H-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-
as the U.S. was learning the ropes, which is it creates a sense of sameness that buys the space for compromise in crises. And our standing alliances and our long-term uh, affectionate commitments to countries that share our values are the basis by which we do that. The third thing that I notice about Britain as the U.S. was a rising power, like the British were right that we were dangerous. We were tempestuous. We were impatient. We were reckless. Right? Grover Cleveland in 1895 gets a unanimous congressional resolution supporting going to war with Britain, which we lacked the ability to win that war. And yet Congress was unanimous in supporting him and starting it. So the British weren't wrong that we were reckless. They were extraordinarily patient teachers, though. And that's the big lesson for the United States as we manage a rising China. We should be skeptical that unless China liberalizes, that the transition should happen peacefully. But we will maximize the likelihood of the transition happening peacefully if we both model and, and teach China the behavior that has made us successful in our dominance. I think there are pretty good examples of us doing it. I think the last four American presidents, I don't include President Trump in this, the, the four predecessors actually did a really good job of embracing this notion of China as a responsible stakeholder and allowing them greater and greater influence if they play, if they play by the rules, but hedging against the fact that they won't play by the rules. A couple of questions. One follow-up. Does the fact that we are so invested in the American way, for lack of a better term, make it more difficult to do what you described Britain as doing when the U.S. began its rise? It's a wonderful question. Um, yes, I think so. But it also, so yes, because uh, this authoritarian government in China manifestly doesn't accept that the values we purport as universal are universal, right? They, they think, you know, China uh, has a different and better way than we do but they don't trust their own people enough to put that to an electoral test. Uh, so what democratic governments, what free societies give you is resilience, right? They're loud, they're tiresome, but they're good at problem solving. They're good at being malleable to what's changing in their own societies. And the international order that the United States created is also really good at managing change. So if you go back and look at American debates about rising powers, right? In the 1950s, we were scared of a rising Germany, right? The economic miracle of Germany in the 1950s. You see all these Americans writing about, didn't we just fight these guys? How are they supplanting us um, so fast? And then in the 1970s and 80s, it's Japan, right? They're geniuses at manufacturing, and we're never going to figure out how to do this. Their society isn't conflictual in the way our society is conflictual. They're so much better than us. My favorite uh, article ever written on American foreign policy was by James Fallows in The Atlantic, right when he came back from being the correspondent in Beijing. And what he points out in that article, it's about the role of the Jeremiah in American foreign policy. We always think we're bad at everything, and that's what helps us fix our problems. 
And I think that's really true. And it's also why we're able to find compromises that make our model much more attractive. So if you look at China's foreign policy, even just in Asia, they are alienating their neighbors and reinforcing the strength and resilience of America's alliances. That's just dumb. It's going to drive up the cost to them of, of establishing the rules that they want. So unless they get a lot smarter, it's going to be a very expensive transition for them in addition to us. And as we wrap up here, I have two final questions. Where does Russia fall in all of this? Because they once were a great superpower. They still think they are a great superpower, although there are many people who debate that. That's one thing. And then during the whole American-British transition, there were good leaders. There were great leaders. There were some not-so-great leaders. Um, what impact does that leadership have on the transition and, in fact, the transition remaining peaceful? And what worries you about leadership today, writ oh, large? Those are all wonderful questions. Uh, so let me start with Russia. Russia is a threat to us through its weakness, not through its strength. And we are, and I agree with your description. They were a great power. They no longer are, but they deeply resent that all of us know they no longer are. And what they would really like is to have a bilateral U.S.-Russia relationship that marginalizes our allies and makes them feel important. And it is very much to the credit of American presidents since 1991 that nobody was willing to do that. Right, that forcing Russia to come to terms with a Europe of countries more powerful than Russia, tightly bound to the United States by alliance and by values, and that we encouraged anybody who shares and institutionalizes those values that they can belong to this club. Um, that's the deal that was on offer to Russia. And the Russians repeatedly don't take it. Right? They don't just want to be Germany or the Netherlands or Poland. They want to be able to impose their will with our complicity on those countries. And we're right to deny that complicity. So I think it's going to be a difficult path for the Russians because the path to prosperity leads, the path to prosperity goes through opting into the American order. And I think they are mistakenly confident that they and the Chinese are these two great, you know, authoritarian capitalist states that are going to revise the order. Russia's not a capitalist state. It's a mafia state. Uh, the Chinese are a partially open economy that has a big choice to make about whether to really open itself up to the global economy and establish the rule of law, protect intellectual property, all of the things that are the operating system of the liberal West. Um, and leadership, to go to your third question, leadership uh, always plays an important role, but I think sometimes we fetishize it, right? It's important not to mythologize the past and and to be honest, the parade of American presidents in the 19th century and most of the 20th century is a parade of mediocrity, 
right? They're mostly not good at their job because we're a government of amateurs, right? We There are no requirements to be president of the United States other than age and elected. That's it. And that's partly what scares America's friends and enemies about the United States, right? That any idiot can get elected and very often does. I think we are really in a crisis of leadership in the West right now. Um, and I, I am serenely unrepentant of my view as a signatory of all of the anti-Trump letters. I feel like the president proves us right every single day. The beautiful thing about American democracy, though, is institutions and the rule of law. The president is constrained. What the 19th century and even the 20th century of American presidencies show is that great leaders like Abraham Lincoln and FDR are outliers and that the system actually can function to produce peace and prosperity without great leadership. And that helps me sleep at night right now. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on Smart Women, Smart Power once again. Dr. Corey Shockey has been our guest. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Beverly Kirk. We're at Smart Women, and Corey is at Corey Shockey. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.